This is a lecture about what Heidegger does when Heidegger does phenomenology. It's not a lecture about what Heidegger says he does when he talks about his craft, since I detect something of a gap between Heidegger's claims <coughs> and his practice, or in this case, between the introduction to Being in Time and the book that follows. My task is to render what Heidegger does into plain English. I confess my aim is deflationary. The sometimes breathless rhetoric which has accumulated around Heidegger is full of promissory notes that cannot be cashed. Such hopeful expressions understandably follow an important work like Heidegger's, but they display a failure to move from metaphor and idiolect to a more discursive and public language. More sharply, that shortcoming might be summarized as the singular failure to think. So I want to try and say in the least exciting way possible what I think Heidegger is up to and what his phenomenology amounts to. Despite my aesthetic aversion to verbal exuberance, Heidegger's work does show us interesting things about ourselves and raises important questions about what it means to be alive. Of course, to represent Heidegger accurately, we could simply read him aloud. My reproduction of Heidegger in English is not that, and consequently, it's meant to be something dispensable. You can throw away my English bridge once you cross it, but I hope that by crossing this bridge, you'll see something maybe slightly new in the task Heidegger undertakes. In what follows, my account is entirely limited to the period before 1928 and concentrates on being in time. If I had one interpretive conviction about Heidegger, it is this. We should never read him in the light of something he later says. So I don't have anything to say about technology or politics or the origin of the work of art. In the first section, I'm going to concentrate on how being in time handles matters of classification. This will be somewhat tedious. In the second section, I'll then state what I think phenomenology is for Heidegger. And finally, I'll point out one of the limitations of phenomenology as Heidegger conceives it. So the first section, classification. Being in Time is a book about ontology. I'm not going to use the word ontology because it seems to have a mystifying effect on us. It's not immediately clear what it would mean to study being, and I'm not confident all of us know what we're talking about when we talk about being. I am anyway quite sure that not everyone is talking about the same thing. Instead, I'll talk about classification, and I'll treat Being in Time as a book about how people classify things. One way to classify something is to name it, but Heidegger is not terribly concerned with that kind of classification. Heidegger would, I think, accept the Shakespearean claim that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So classification can be arbitrary or superficial. But Martin Heidegger treats matters of classification as fundamentally important rather than superficial or dispensable. Thus, being in time supposes there to be two different kinds of classification fundamental and superficial. And Heidegger concentrates on the fundamental kind. According to Being in Time, acts of classification are not only a provisional way that we occasionally treat things for our convenience. Of course, they can be that, but such cases are not of primary interest to Heidegger. Rather, in Being in Time, classification is also depicted as the basic way things are known in the first instance ordering the world we already inhabit, determining what any item is, and constituting its relations with everything else. 
For something to be what it is on this account is for it to be classified in a particular way. This fundamental variety of classification is required for something to show up at all, for it even to be recognized. The limits of classification are therefore limits of being. What is is just what is within the scope of classification. If superficial classification is responsible for renaming or naming a Shakespearean rose that we already have, fundamental classification is responsible for having the rose at all. Being in time depicts a system of classification spatially and imagines people as inhabiting that system and as classified within it. People inhabit a taxonomy of their classificatory commitments. People have understanding within the scope, or as Heidegger puts it, clearing of their taxonomy. The world you know is your taxonomy. This kind of taxonomy is not something in your head, but something out there in the world. The light of understanding is coterminous with what is out there, and understanding is not in the first instance the naming of entities, but the fact of having a world and knowing how to rely on it. The semantic scope of this taxonomic structure is the horizon within which things can be known, the clearing in which things exist for us. World is just Heidegger's, Heidegger's name for this clearing. One can see or understand just as far as one can classify. The limits of a system of classification are the limits of what is. These mark out the clearing or world one inhabits, and these limits orientate all the possibilities of items found within it. Questions of fundamental classification ask, is it or is it not? Or perhaps they ask, in what way is it? Whereas questions of superficial classification ask, is it named this way or not? Heidegger calls questions of the first kind ontological, and as I've said, I'll neglect the term. The difference between fundamental and superficial classification is worth <coughs> grasping. Fundamental classification provides the scope of what is, the clearing of being, the world one inhabits. Fundamental classification is responsible for presenting, carving, and ordering a world in a particular way, the way one already knows the world to be. Superficial classification relies upon that carving to regroup or distinguish material within it in conscious ways. An act of fundamental classification would present the world in three dimensions and give us apples and oranges on a table in a room. An act of superficial classification would reflect on that world, determining there to be a group of 20 apples and another group of 10 oranges. An example like this is inadequate in several ways, but it's a good start because it usefully displays a key difference between these two kinds of classification. Superficial classification is always parasitic on what fundamental classification has already made available. In the months before Heidegger finished writing Being in Time, he described this two-level system of classification. He says, quote, Every form of speaking about things is already grounded in existence as world open. That is, all speech speaks about something that is somehow already disclosed. He goes on to describe the experience of inhabiting an entire world that is, quote, before our explicit and conscious efforts to think about it. It is the familiar world that we are already engaging. It's the condition for the possibility of our efforts to describe, examine, and reclassify its items using explicit forms of speech or thought. It's a meaningful world that we always already inhabit. As Heidegger says, words accrue to meaning. 
In the entire scope of what's classified fundamentally, everything exists without conscious linguistic naming or self-conscious reflective consideration. Instead, everything's known in terms of its use, its purpose, its teleology. Everything appears in terms of how it will matter for us. It's a familiar world, and we're already adept at engaging all its features, already actively walking and sitting, posturing our bodies and holding books and turning pages, relying on floors, entering and exiting, drinking and eating. And it's the world in which we use tools and engage in activities like manual labor. It's the world in which we turn on a light or pick up a hammer without needing to look at them sharply, saying, that's a light switch or that's a hammer. It's a way of living that is, as Heidegger puts it, quote, pre-predicative, a primary making sense of things in terms of what they're for. And it's the normal experience of everyday life. This is the picture of our experience of the world Heidegger gives in his lectures from 1924 to 1927. And it's the picture that's presented in Being and Time. I describe these two levels in our experience as those of fundamental and superficial classification. This is intended to keep clear what each mode of engagement does and how each differs. Heidegger describes those two kinds of engagement in various ways in the 1920s. He sometimes, confusingly for his readers, refers to them both as speech or language, though he typically has some grammatical way of keeping the distinction in view. Being in time keeps clear the difference between superficial and fundamental modes of classifying. The investigations of being in time are firmly directed towards the fundamental variety but it does provide an account of the complex interaction between the mode of fundamental and superficial classification. So as soon as the difference between fundamental and superficial classification is grasped, we must begin to muddy the distinction. It's important to recognize that there is finally no historically stable contrast between fundamental and superficial modes of classifying. The initial carving and ordering of a world on the one hand, and the whole body of explicit names for consciously regrouping things appearing in that world, on the other hand, are two processes that tend to affect each other in complex ways over time. And the timescales here include everything from daily life to human history. If Heidegger sometimes treats fundamental classification as a kind of silent speaking, without conscious words, this is partially because it has been formed by prior acts of superficial classification, including speech. Being in time outlines a cyclical process in which superficial acts of classifying are sedimented into fundamental habits of constituting the world, which in turn supports altered forms of superficial perception and revision. Heidegger calls this a hermeneutical circle. Here's what's important about all this. The relation between superficial and fundamental acts of classification suggests that most of the taxonomic structure used to constitute the world we know the clearing of what is has been supplied by prior acts of superficial classification. For Heidegger, language, reason, and being all embody a particular social history because they are the use of an inherited taxonomy. In short, we inhabit an inherited world. Heidegger took the important step, he was obviously not the first, of recognizing that most of the material in any scheme of classification is formed by a particular past, and thus the world that one finds oneself to inhabit, the clearing of being, the scope of a taxonomy, is a world that one inherits rather than makes anew. Heidegger's more dramatic language has us thrown into that particular clearing, and it orientates or determines all the ways we live in it. Thrownness is Heidegger's description of the inheritance of a world, 
of an entire scheme of fundamental classification constituting what is. Projection is Heidegger's special term for the way we reason about that world, the way we move forward on the basis of what is and adjust our inheritance according to where we want to go. I've been describing this Heideggerian relation in terms of fundamental and superficial acts of classifying. So being in time investigates fundamental classification. Heidegger thus generally ignores acts of superficial classification, even while acknowledging that our fundamental modes of classifying are formed by prior, now sedimented, superficial acts. Furthermore, within the scope of fundamental classification, Heidegger directs his interest towards those features of any given taxonomy that are necessary to support the rest of the structure. If we were to imagine a taxonomy of categories arranged from the little to the big, from the subordinate to the superordinate, Heidegger is after the superordinate bits, the governing classificatory commitments which house the rest of a taxonomy. These are not forms of classification we learned on the radio this morning, but the guiding commitments which provide the basic shape of our world. And Heidegger seems to think some of these powerful forms of classification are necessarily shared by every person. In sum, Being in Time does not investigate at great length the relation between fundamental and superficial modes of classifying, and Heidegger is least interested in the historically contingent tradition features of fundamental classification, even though he rightly claims that these compose the majority of any taxonomic scheme of any inhabited world. Heidegger's interest remains firmly directed towards fundamental modes of classifying, and further, he limits his concern to those features of a taxonomy which are necessary and universal. Any historically contingent aspect of our experience is a chance for Heidegger to pursue the more fundamental question, what sort of being must we be for that to be a possible experience? So for a text that depicts a relation between thrownness and projection as basic to human experience, for a text that treats the inheritance of categories as the ground of thought, being in time does not often attend to the vast body of material accumulated in any particular cultural taxonomy from the history of that community. When Heidegger observes this material, he does so as a clue to the more fundamental commitments that lie behind it. Heidegger does not want to know about my taxonomy or your taxonomy. Heidegger expressly does not want to know what it's like to inhabit a pagan Greek taxonomy or a Latin Christian taxonomy. Heidegger wants to know what it means to have any taxonomy at all. Section 2 on Heidegger's Phenomenology People stand at the center of a clearing made by their taxonomy. Being in time depicts people as defined by the world they inhabit. Humans are fundamentally orientated by whatever possibilities their world happens to make available, by the taxonomy in which they live. Situating people inside that clearing and insisting that they are part of that clearing is something Heidegger will do in contrast with any account where humans stand outside the world and apply their schemes of classification to it. Taxonomies are not in your head. According to Heidegger, they are coextensive with the world you already know and they define who you are. People do not have much of a choice about the world they already inhabit, because they learn how to classify things from their parents and community. All of us already inhabit a taxonomy. We are committed to our taxonomies before we inquire about them. This makes their examination and revision particularly tricky. 
we simply presuppose our scheme of fundamental classification. It's a set of commitments structuring our world. One relies on such a world. It's the background on which any specific entity can show up. To read Being in Time as an investigation of this background is to read it as a work concerned with the conditions and constraints of classification that render the world as we experience it. To repeat what's already been said, for something to be what it is, is for it to be classified in a particular way. Classifying is required for something to show up at all, for it even to be recognized. The limits of classification are the limits of what is, of being. What exists is what is within the scope of classification. A system of classification is not best analyzed as a homogeneous entity. It's best described as composed of categories, which themselves contain categories, which in turn contain categories, and so forth. In such a scheme, one can begin at any point and move in either a superordinate or a subordinate direction, finding more general or more specific categories of classification. Incidentally, many philosophers have asked whether there's a terminus in either direction, especially whether there might be one category which contains all the others, perhaps 12. This is not a question I will consider now. What's important to our present discussion is that a body of categories is presupposed and that it is identifiable with our world. It's a taxonomy of fundamental rather than superficial classification. We are already committed to the categories of our taxonomy. They are our commitments. They form hierarchical groups, or rather, they can be described as so doing. Of course, any description of a taxonomy that we already presuppose must itself be a superficial description, a parasitic effort of reflection. So when we talk about fundamental classification, we are doing superficial classification. What, you might wonder, does all of this have to do with phenomenology? I read Being in Time as an investigation of the taxonomy one inhabits. When Heidegger pursues his inquiry, he uses the technique of phenomenology. As Heidegger employs it, this technique is not terribly difficult to understand. He examines specific instances of human experience, manual labor, traffic signs, anxiety, gossip, death, guilt, and he asks what conditions must be in place for these phenomena to become part of our experience. Commitments is my term for naming those conditions. Heidegger asks, what sort of clearing must there be for these items to show up? Or put differently, what kind of taxonomy must I presuppose to have had such experiences? This is Heidegger's phenomenology, a sustained and orderly account of the conditions for the possibility of a phenomenon that occurs in everyday life. Thus, for Heidegger, phenomenology is not about phenomena. Whatever the phenomenon is, that is the thing Heidegger does not care about. Whenever there is some phenomenon, Heidegger asks what the condition is for it to show up in our world, in our taxonomy. Because our taxonomic commitments form hierarchies, and because the subordinate commitments can be redefined by any superordinate commitment, Heidegger aims to uncover the most superordinate commitment of them all. Call it being. Whatever it is, that commitment is the final arbiter of any phenomenon, the ultimate orientation of our world, and thus already the governing character of every item in it. Being in time is an investigation of background commitments. It takes phenomena from everyday life and seeks to uncover the background conditions that make those phenomena possible. Confusing many readers of being in time, Heidegger often names a condition after some phenomenon it supports.
This would be like naming birthdays, presents, if we thought birthdays were the condition for the possibility of presents. Readers, and even a few writers, have been known to suppose Heidegger is discussing some interesting phenomenon precisely when he is examining the conditions that make it possible. For example, care is roughly his name for the way the present appears to us on the basis of a past that we reimagine according to a future we hope to experience. It is this threefold structure that allows people to care about anything at all. Thus, one version of care is actually the background condition for a variety of cases of caring. And there might not be anything especially caring-like about the care which makes everyday caring possible. There's care, and then there's care, said in a dramatic voice. Methodologically, Heidegger moves from the phenomena to their grounds, the commitments that make them possible. He's more interested in the latter than the former. It's because he names the grounds after the examples which facilitated their discovery that he must employ a series of verbal tricks to keep the two distinct, such as quotation marks or slight variations of vocabulary. To add to this confusion, such distinctions are then variously rendered by various English translations. This makes for a tangle of names. Broadly, one must remember that whenever some phenomenon is discussed, such as death, there is always the condition for its possibility. Death, said in a dramatic voice. If Heidegger were to examine human care and conclude that care was a fundamental feature of human existence, we should not immediately assume that there's anything caring about that care, even if everyday caring were the phenomenon that led him to discover the condition he names care. Similarly, there might not be anything biologically morbid about the condition named death, or anything typically truth-like about truth, said in appropriately dramatic voice. Why would Heidegger use this confusing system of names when he does phenomenology? Well, it doesn't really matter so long as we're aware of it and we're able to keep in view the difference between phenomena and the condition for their possibility. Heidegger almost always uses some trick to keep the two distinct. A simple example, however, might be useful. In the United States, there's a widely revered political document called the Constitution. When most Americans speak of the Constitution, they're referring to this document. The Constitution of the United States is a set of words with the force of law. Heidegger might try to remind Americans that the real Constitution is whatever social and political arrangements actually constitute the relations between various branches of government. There is the Constitution, and there is the condition for the possibility of such a document, the Constitution, said in a dramatic voice. Of course, many Americans might query whether this hierarchy should be reversed, but to ask the question is to grasp the difference between a phenomenon and the condition for its possibility and it's to grasp that these will sometimes share a common name. Interestingly, in Heidegger's account, many of the background conditions he hopes to discover are involuntary, necessary, and universal. They're like Kant's a priori categories or forms of sensibility. This should not prevent us from seeing them as commitments. Their origin as necessary does not change their effective status as a commitment of classification. An example might clarify what I mean. Consider gender. It's a commitment. Such commitments will entail many subordinate commitments, but that does not require us to consider whether any are necessary, perhaps even biological. That a commitment or features of it is possibly biological in origin does not change that it is installed as a commitment. Here we simply should not confuse the difference between origin and use. Biological origins, to whatever extent they obtain, do not change the fact that commitments are in place. Of course, if there are some necessary commitments, and Heidegger thinks that there are, it remains that many will follow which are not. 
Commitments support other commitments, thus becoming superordinate to those which are subordinate. Heidegger's phenomenology begins by asking what classifying commitment supports the appearance of a particular phenomenon, and then asks what superordinate commitment supports that one, and so forth. Phenomenology is the story Heidegger tells us about those commitments. Heidegger's principal interest is the discovery of those commitments which are the condition for all the others. He calls one of these temporality. His route to those big superordinate commitments is phenomenology, which means he starts with everyday actions or experiences and seeks the conditions that make them possible, and then, in turn, he asks what conditions make those conditions possible. Every condition can be viewed as a phenomenon in relation to a bigger, more superordinate background condition. Examining everyday acts of care leads Heidegger to an account of the condition for its possibility, similarly named care but said in a dramatic voice. A condition which he thinks is roughly a structural relation wherein the present appears on the basis of a past that we imagine according to an intended future. This structure is in turn made possible by the condition he names temporality, but which is unlike an ordinary concept of time. Or take the justly famous example of a hammer. Heidegger asks, what would have to be true for there to be hammers? It turns out that there must be a whole bunch of other tools. We need nails of a certain size and boards of an appropriate thickness and perhaps saws to cut wood. In short, a single tool needs a whole set of other tools to be that tool. And while tools demand a workshop or some environment in which we can use them, and environments can only obtain within some larger world, and people only have worlds as part of what it means to be in a world, and being in a world is only possible if there is being, which is a kind of purposeful orientation for our lives so that everything in our world matters to us in some way, or something like that. In short, Heidegger's phenomenology is a story about the fundamental commitments we use to carve up our world, and that story moves from the subordinate to the superordinate. Okay, last part, in which I'll try and point out one of the limits of this kind of phenomenology. So far, I've described being in time as an inquiry about fundamental classification. I've been asking what Heidegger does in being in time, and I've said that he looks at everyday experiences in order to find the classificatory commitments that support them, ultimately aiming to discover the big superordinate commitments, the categories supporting the rest of the taxonomy. To do this is to do phenomenology as I understand Heidegger to practice it. Heidegger examines something that shows up in our experience, and he queries the commitment that makes its appearance possible, and proceeds to ask what further commitments support that commitment, and so forth. Heidegger asks, in virtue of what does that phenomenon show up as it does? It's important to remember that none of these commitments are unhinged from our everyday experience, no matter how abstract. There is not some big category supporting the others which operates independently of our every experience. When we see an apple, we do not lose our commitment to the room in which it appears, or our sense of being a guest in that room. Nor do we lose our commitment to the wider world and the kind of life we are pursuing. Nor, finally, do we lose our commitment to something like being itself. Consequently, an inquiry which takes the terminal category as its goal will be an investigation directed towards the person who supplies that category and towards the world in which it obtains. Now, early in his career, Heidegger makes a simple observation that leads him up the taxonomic chain towards those giant umbrella terms. The observation sustains his inquiry throughout being in time. It is this. 
Whenever two things are related, they require a third thing to support that relation, some broader term to house the two things. If we take two stars in the sky to be related, it is because we act to put them in that kind of relation. We are the third thing in common with each star. Two stars by themselves are not two stars in relation in the requisite sense. We are a commonality which relates disparate things. Consider taste and sight. Visual things are not like scented things, but we are able to relate them. It's not enough to say that sight, the sight of a rose and its smell are related by habit. Heidegger would ask how it is ever conceivable that sight and scent could possibly be put in relation. For us, they are united on the background of our world, in our kind of consciousness. In short, they are both phenomena. Here follows a question that Heidegger does not answer. It shows the limits of his phenomenology, and while those limits are especially obvious when we get to the top of the taxonomy, they affect every act of fundamental classification. The question is this. To what is our world related, and what supports that relation? Or, what does fundamental classification classify? The structured world we inhabit is the result of a prior relation between a whole taxonomy of categories and that which they classify, a relation that produces our world. Fundamental classification is everything that has already happened when you glance around at the many-faceted world. Superficial classification is much easier to imagine because it is, by definition, parasitic. Superficial classification takes something we already have and renames it, reconsiders it, or revises our understanding of it. But what does fundamental classification classify? If we said something like, it classifies things in themselves, or it classifies reality, we would make the mistake of granting existence to what has not yet come into existence for us. Worse, and more subtly, we would have brought into existence something and therefore missed our target. However, we could imagine a scenario in which there must be a direct relationship between a taxonomy and things in themselves, or something like that, if there were to be any phenomenal experience at all. Consider what would happen if someone's entire taxonomy were erased, save the terminal category. This would be an ontological state of nature, a myth of taxonomic nudity. Imagine a table. On the table are placemats. If we were to remove the category of placemats from one scheme of fundamental classification, then perhaps it's simply a table with some irrelevant stuff on it. We might not even care to distinguish the mats from the table, any more than we typically care to distinguish dirt and bits of rubbish from the pavement. What if we kept stripping away categories? What if houses became meaningless obstacles, odd-looking boulders in the terrain of the world? Imagine someone who had one big commitment left in their taxonomy, just enough to stand, as it were, in the clearing of being. If we were to remove one more category from their scheme of classification, then all the lights would go out. Their single category is doing the whole job of uncovering the bare world. We can imagine this person recognizing that they are in some place but being incapable of recognizing or describing any item within it. They are incompetent to recognize the distinctions between rocks and soil. Perhaps there's no up and down, or forwards and backwards. The footpath, the stone wall, the shovel, the animals, the house, the sky, these are all simply part of the ground. And without the category of obstacles, they do not even stand out from the ground in a way that matters. The ground, in fact, is not even distinguished from the sky. Yet it remains that all these things, which we consider distinct items, are in some way ingredient to this experience, though individually invisible to the extent that they are undifferentiated. 
Now, the key point of this exercise is that progressively stripping categories from a scheme of classification gets into view the job performed by all fundamental classification. In the example, that job is left to the final category, which stands, as it were, between light and darkness. To what does this category relate? How is this relation possible? Unlike the relation between sight and scent, Heidegger's phenomenology cannot explain this heterogeneous relation, because there is no third thing supporting it, no umbrella term to relate consciousness to what is not consciousness. Of course, this is not a question about the relation between mind and world, but between mind and world together in whatever underwrites them. And this is not a problem left only to the supreme category in some taxonomy. We might be tempted to think that some one big category does the impossible and special job of bringing everything into our world, and that superficial classification follows behind to carve out the many disparate phenomena of our lives. This would give the terminal category a unique status, requiring it alone to overcome the impossible divide in order to form the scope of what is, the taxonomy of being. Every subsequent act of classification would just superficially classify something that the one big category has already made available. Heidegger refuses this option. We must not think that the unity between heterogeneous kinds of things happens only between the most superordinate commitment in a taxonomy and whatever that category classifies, reality or things in themselves or whatever. For Heidegger, this direct relationship happens at every level of a fundamental taxonomy, and he has some very nice examples. Indeed, this is the final difference between fundamental and superficial modes of classification. Fundamental classification always brings our world into experience like a creation out of nothing, whereas superficial classification identifies entities that have already been brought within the horizon of our experience. Heidegger's phenomenology exposes this problem, but it does not solve it. Thank you.